Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. They will be able to give their consent for a COVID jab without even telling their parents. Four. And I'm wondering aloud if the science now has been thrown out the window and this is pure politics. And then the power is deployed down to Helmand, which is essentially like sending Millwall football hooligans to Chelsea to improve relations. I do think that in the end, in the final analysis... This is still just about a vote winner for Joe Biden. One. We have liftoff. And welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Despite the mind-numbing test-to-release admin and airport arrival queues, my two weeks on a Greek island provided a welcome break from Blighty. But it's good to be back. And I'm grateful to our fellow Telegraph columnist, Tim Stanley, for standing in so superbly well as Alison's Planet Normal co-pilot. Well, Alison, I turn my back for a couple of weeks and the world seems to shift on its (laughs) geopolitical axis. We've seen some astonishing scenes in Afghanistan, with the Taliban effectively shooing away the world's military superpower. Yes, Joe Biden is keen to end America's 20-year forever war and bring US soldiers home. But no one expected Kabul to fall so rapidly. Scenes of chaos at the airport as US, British and many other foreign nationals attempt to leave to say nothing of Afghans who've loyally helped Western forces over many years and may now face Taliban persecution have shocked the world. Now, Alison, you and I, we're going to talk about COVID quite soon, not least an important new development on child vaccination, a planet normal scoop, no less, reported exclusively in today's Telegraph. But let's just reflect first on this latest G7 summit the rejection by both the US and the Taliban of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's request to extend the 31st of August deadline to leave Afghanistan. What do you make of that? Well, before we crack into that small subject, Halligan, I think I'm going to say welcome back. Thank As you, you. said, you paid very nice tribute to your stand-in, Tim Stanley. All, all I can say at this point is that Tim was deeply knowledgeable and eloquent, but slightly limited in his Scooby-Doo impressions. No, uh, so, so you haven't you haven't lost the gig purely on 70s TV references. Yeah, I mean, what a period, really, since you went away. I mean, I think you and Dominic Ra, both on the Sun Lounger, and before you can say Mujahideen, the Taliban have rolled back into the capital. That's not a coincidence. 
<laughs> God, I mean, every night seeing it on the news. I mean, that that sense, of, I, I think, of history being made and of darkness descending on a people. And, and I think particularly the women, I think that that's what's impinging a lot. I think that we've still got 4,000 British nationals and Afghan people who worked for our people out there that the British government would like to get out. But as you say, President Joe Biden seems to be missing in action. I think I've always had quite a lot of time for him and I absolutely deplore him now, Halligan. I mean, Biden said, I have seen no question of our credibility from our allies around the world. And, you know, then you've got the sort of Angela Merkel successor in Germany saying it's the biggest debacle that NATO has suffered since its creation. Absolutely dreadful times. And have we got any leverage now? It seems to me that we're completely powerless against these barbarians. It does. And people have compared this with scenes as America left Vietnam scenes in Saigon, the famous helicopter evacuations. In terms of Boris Labour, obviously say the PM's failed, he's been ignored by Joe Biden. But Tory MPs themselves are scarcely more impressed, are they? No. This emergency summit that we've been watching yesterday and today, as we record, shows really scant resolve to invigorate the US-UK relationship by the British government, which is pretty much what we saw at the main G7 summit in Cornwall back in July. So I think there's both despondency across the House of Commons and some of the country at both Britain's place and influence in the world, but also at what America is offering. And yet I have to say, Alison, and yet I have to say that in the end, despite much of the commentariat, public opinion as expressed in political party rhetoric being deeply shocked at these scenes and the sense that the Western hegemony is slipping. I do think that in the end, in the final analysis, this is still just about a vote winner for Joe Biden. I know that's an unpopular view, but I think what Trump tamped into, Trump didn't start a war, of course, one of the only US presidents of our lifetimes not to have started a war, despite his sort of rhetorical belligerence and the disregard in which he was held by much of the liberal establishment. He didn't start a war. He wanted to focus on America first. And this was part of Joe Biden's campaign. He doesn't obviously trying to get this done in such a hurry by the 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001, which of course had very little to do with Afghanistan, as we know. That's political gimmickry And pressing, 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 pressing for that deadline will cause untold suffering among Afghans left behind who have been working for the Allied powers and many others too. But I do think in the end, if Biden hadn't done this at some stage, then he would have lost more votes than he gains. I don't agree. I would have agreed with you a few weeks ago because I think that Biden and his team had tapped into that Trump thing, hadn't they? They'd looked at the popularity of Trump and the, why should we be losing our sons and daughters on foreign soil? I think that was very powerful. But I do think now that that effect of great, we're pulling back, is now being cancelled out by this absolute humiliation. I mean, 
we're you know the western powers aren't just leaving afghanistan they're you know going running away with the tail between their legs and what i notice in the uh, obviously follow a lot of the american coverage and it's pretty scathing from all sides you know it's not that the democrat press or the democrat leaning media is saying oh yes it's great i mean i think people think it's an absolute abortion and i think it's only going to get worse liam because in theory as you said at the g7 meeting boris macron macron of course doing the french you know there was a, a moral responsibility to the people that had worked with the allies in afghanistan biden's rejected that absolutely not going beyond the 31st of the august deadline in fact i think that it probably be even sooner because they've only got a limited time to get civilians out before they absolutely have to start getting the military out and I just think it's going to get worse. We've seen already seen stomach churning scenes, haven't we, of babies being passed over barbed wire to soldiers and so on. Really, really horrifying scenes. There was a woman on the news last night, an Afghan woman journalist, just basically saying they're going to kill me. And even when the evacuation is complete, it's not going to be over because they're just going to be absolutely more and more horrifying stories of executions and women being shut away in the dreaded burqa. I mean, it's an interesting thing, Liam, that the left in this country will get very upset when women like me say that the burqa is a is a horrible garment of suppression. But it's fine to say that when women in Afghanistan are made to wear it. But I, I, I just see it being an infamous episode. And I think that the suffering is likely to go on and on, really. I agree with all that. I think the situation on the ground is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The Taliban, knowing that this is an absolutely fantastic PR hit for them, <laughs> demonstrating their power and cunning around the world, will make sure that it gets a lot worse before it gets better. They're extremely media savvy. But I still think that in the end, the fact that America was conducting this forever war as Joe Biden called it and Trump called it was corrosive and ground down at public opinion over the years. It was always going to be difficult to get out after 20 years effective occupation and failed nation building. I've never really believed in nation building. You know, post-war Germany and Japan, the so-called MacArthur model of American development, very, very different from a much, much less developed country with far, far, far more radicalization, not least theological ra radicalization. I've always thought that was naive. I think it's interesting that people are starting to talk about the kind of resource motivations for Western interest in Afghanistan, things like lithium and so on, and whether those rare earths will fall into Chinese and Russian hands. Now, I think that's an aspect of these geopolitical shifts that the media shies away from too often to not explain them to readers. But we shall see. And I tell you what, Alison, we're going to come back to this subject because I made it my business when I came back from Greece to secure for us a Planet Normal guest that would focus on Afghanistan. And we will come to that guest. And I'm sure you will be extremely impressed by what that guest has to say. Somebody who has many, many months and years of on-the-ground experience in Afghanistan, both as a soldier and a journalist documentary maker. So we'll come to that soon. Because I do think 
it's very, very important we focus now on this Planet Normal exclusive. Why don't you tell listeners what I'm referring to? Well, regular listeners will know that we've been very interested in the vaccination programme. And as the age groups have got younger and younger, I've particularly raised concerns about that. And then a couple of days ago, I heard from a Planet Normal listener who works in the management of the mass vaccination programme for a particular region of the country. And this, our source, said, I provide this information anonymously, would be happy for you to verify my identity, which we have done. And Laura Donnelly, who is reporting on this for The Telegraph, has absolutely looked into this. Now, hold on to your hat, co-pilot, because our source claims that there's a plan to roll out the universal vaccination of all 12 to 15-year-olds in England. Looks like this will start at the beginning of September the 6th and will take place in schools as quickly as possible. This information was communicated to our source and other SROs, that's the senior responsible officers of the vaccination programme, and all NHS trusts need to submit their plans by the end of Friday, which is tomorrow. Now, this is quite a shock, Liam, but listen to this. Our source says the parental consent process for school immunisation is usually two weeks, but this will be reduced to 48 hours. Blimey. According to the planning documents, which our source has provided, which Laura Donnelly has vetted, 12 to 15 year olds will be able to give consent to being vaccinated themselves because they are what's known as Gillick competent. Now, Liam, you'll remember the Victoria Gillick case, quite a notorious case in 1985. There was a House of Lords decision on this case in which campaigner and mother Victoria Gillick challenged the right of a local authority to provide contraception to her underage children without her knowledge. Now, basically, Gillick competent means if a child is deemed competent to understand the medical treatment, they will be able to give their consent, in this case, for a COVID jab without even telling their parents. And our source said, I have some major concerns about rolling out the vaccine to 12 or 15 year olds. Well, let me tell you, co-pilot, I wouldn't have any 12 year old child of mine in a school gym being asked by a volunteer vaccinator if they understand what they're consenting to. There are members of the JCVI committee, the vaccination committee, who don't fully understand the risk-benefit analysis of this, how on earth are these 12, 13, 14-year-old kids going to understand it? This is a hugely important story, Alison, and our source has been vetted, the source's identity verified by Laura Donnelly, the Telegraph's health editor, one of the most experienced health correspondents on Fleet Street. Uh, We've seen the planning documents that our source has been sent. This isn't a flyer, as we say in journalism. This isn't just a surmise. This is happening. And The Telegraph has revealed it. And it'd be very interesting to see how the government responds. Let's just say there that what we know is the government is is not agreeing that it's going ahead. 
It's been described as an NHS plan. But let's face it, the date that our source is saying this is going to begin is in 10 days time. And our source has been asked to recruit more volunteer vaccinators. So just to say that it is not being confirmed and some of the details that the source has given are not being confirmed. And yet, what do you think? I mean, the, the source got back from holiday, opened the email, and there was this stuff basically saying, this stuff starting, you better damn well get going. And something that really came across strongly from the source was the objection from this very, very experienced vaccination manager is that the reduction in time for informed consent process by parents. And the source said that they heard from a senior person, it will give them less time to raise objections. In terms of the politics of this, is the, if the government is claiming that this is just a plan, it's clearly a plan with serious intent, given that we've got official documents showing that regional officers are being ordered to recruit more people to implement this plan. So this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky scenario building. This is a plan that's documented to start in just a few days' time, in time for the start of the new school year. Now, it may be in response to this Planet Normal scoop, in the response to this Telegraph story, which I'm sure other papers will pick up, the public outcry is so much that the government retreats from the plan. It doesn't mean that the original story isn't true. (laughs) The government is implementing a plan to do this right now. That plan may be reversed. It depends how the public and the political class, I think, responds. Wouldn't you say it's in the balance? Well, I would hope it was in the balance, although I do know that there are lots of parents who are understandably hazy about all the risks and benefits. I think quite a lot of people just think, oh, you know, let's get them vaccinated. It'll be safer for everyone. I think one of the most significant things to emerge in the last couple of weeks while you were in your budgie smugglers. um, (laughs) You got the photos then. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for the photos of you on the windsurfer. I particularly appreciated that. No, just that, that we now know that with the Delta variant, even the vaccinated are capable of just both being infected by the virus and transmitting it. So that that question mark over the vaccine, obviously, it's still offering very good protection against serious illness and hospitalisation. The thing I want to ask you, Halligan, listen to this, all right? So if you remember the JCVI, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, they originally, this is within the last month, rejected giving 16 and 17-year-olds the vaccine because they said that the benefits didn't outweigh the risk because we know that teenagers and children don't really suffer from COVID, but there are a tiny risk of adverse effects. So what I'm saying is that the JCVI controversially changed its mind a fortnight later after saying there was more risk than benefit to giving it to 16 and 17-year-olds. I think they look pretty shifty when they were interviewed about that. Are we now thinking the JCVI is seriously going to give the go-ahead to vaccinating much younger children? And as you every time you go down the age groups, you are getting more risk and less benefit. What I'd like to ask you is, what do you think is going on? Are those scientists, those very experienced vaccine experts, are they going to go along with this? Are they going to capitulate? Or do you think there might be a power struggle going on? 
I think there's a power struggle going on, Alison. I think this is reminiscent of the who governs Britain debate in the early and mid 70s when we were kids ogling at the television and, and reading our parents' newspapers. Why do I say that? We're approaching a new school year the third school year in succession that could well be seriously disrupted by this pandemic. I have three school-age or university-age children. As you know, you have young adult children still in education. I wonder, and I'm wondering aloud, I'm not pointing fingers, but I'm wondering aloud if the science now has been thrown out the window, and this is pure politics. Are the teaching unions threatening to disrupt another school year unless all the kids are vaccinated in order, in their view, to protect teaching staff, even though so many other people in other walks of life aren't requiring this kind of complete, total, zero COVID style strategy that involves immunising children as young as 12. That's what I wonder what's going on. And it's part of a bigger trend, I think. We have white-collar unions now, the BMA, the doctors' union, which only covers uh, 50% of our GPs, but they are now trying to uh, deflect blame for this massive hospital waiting list, this massive increase in cancers that have been left untreated given the big slump in face-to-face GP consultations. And you've got the the medical unions, I would say, and the teaching unions, similarly to the more industrial unions in the 70s when we were kids, basically pushing the government around, the elected government around, and telling them what to do. And the elected government is capitulating to these enormous vested interests. Now, that might seem like an extreme point of view, but I'd suggest that it isn't, and increasingly it will be a more widely held view. This is a new 1970s industrial relations standoff. This time, though, the collars aren't blue, they're white. Do you remember there was that famous headline from about 1974, wasn't it, which was, Who Governs Britain? And I agree with you, Liam. I think that what we've seen is COVID has been used by union leaders. The British Medical Association is not a professional body. The British Medical Association is a very powerful union, and they have used COVID to usher in a new system of working, which is basically digital triage. It's an astonishing statistic I came across when I was writing, you know, I was writing my column this week and I did a big lead on the GPs, there were 37 million fewer GP appointments during the last 17 months. Now, just let that register. How can that not have had a catastrophic effect on national health? And the thing I went on this week, I mean, we'll come back to the child vaccination. But the thing I really had a go at this week, I don't know if you've seen it, there's this new advertising campaign by the NHS, which is offering advice for people who are experiencing a persistent cough or prolonged stomach pain. Don't hesitate to seek advice from your GP. I mean, can you spot any logical flaw in that advice, Halligan? We've had so many emails, haven't we, from Planet Normal listeners. We've had so many examples in our own lives of people being locked in this Kafkaesque doom circle where you try and get a doctor's appointment, you're told to get online, put all the stuff in. They say, oh, you've passed. Try and get a doctor's appointment. (laughs) (laughs) Then you ring again. You go from phone, receptionist triage who 
is off, obviously in a difficult position, but he or she is there basically to stop you getting a, an appointment in many cases, then on the internet. And it's no wonder that many, many ordinary men and women, as you remarked upon, Alison, have just given up trying to get doctor's appointment. It doesn't mean that they're fickle. It doesn't mean that they're hapless. It doesn't mean that they don't care about their health or the health of their children. It means that they've been massively ground down by bureaucracy and a system which in some cases, just some cases, there are many great GPs out there, many of them write to Planet Normal. Some of them have appeared on Planet Normal anonymously because they don't want to upset their more belligerent colleagues. But it does seem that for many GPs, as you wrote brilliantly in The Telegraph, it's about protecting their work-life balance rather than protecting their patients' death-life balance. Hi, listeners. I'm Claire Cohen, The Telegraph's women's editor and the host of another podcast that might be just up your street. Even saying that gives me imposter syndrome. But that's what the show's all about. If you've ever had that niggling feeling that you don't belong in the room, that you feel a bit like a fraud and could be found out at any moment, this one's for you. Over six episodes on my podcast, Imposters, I meet a woman at the top of her game and find out how she defeated self-doubt to get there. I've been conditioned to think that I should be at the bottom of the hierarchy ladder and therefore it's a miracle that I'm even where I am. Let's let's give myself credit for that. I'm not someone who walks into a room with entitlement. I never have. You can either choose to live in fear or you can think, how can I make the best of today? And that's a conscious choice. You can find it by clicking on the link in the episode description or search imposters wherever you're listening to this. Now, while on holiday in Greece, I was monitoring the news, of course, from Afghanistan closely. Journalists are news junkies. We can't help ourselves. And as well as alarming, it was also weirdly mesmerising to watch the mighty United States be effectively pushed around by a ragtag army. While on my Greek sun lounger, I decided on my return I'd invite James Glancy onto Planet Normal. As a Royal Marine, Captain Glancy served for 12 years completing three tours of Afghanistan, he won the conspicuous gallantry cross, only the Victoria Cross is higher. James cares about Afghanistan deeply, and since leaving the services in 2014, while carving out a new career as a conservationist, a filmmaker, spending time as a Brexit Party MEP no less, he's continued to visit Afghanistan frequently, not least over recent months while shooting a new documentary. I started by asking James if he was surprised how quickly the Taliban reasserted control over Kabul. He responded by highlighting immediately the role of the ISI. That's Pakistan's intelligence service. I think I was as shocked as everyone else, including the Pakistani ISI who were behind this invasion of Afghanistan, at the speed in which the Afghan forces and then government collapsed in the space of, we're talking about two weeks here. Even though districts have started to fall from early May or just before May, the rate in which the capitulation took place is unprecedented. And I think to really understand it, you need to understand the extent to which this was planned by Pakistan using the lessons identified from the end of the Soviet invasion when they withdrew 
and the country went into civil war with uh, the Taliban, Mujahideen and the warlords. They learned a lot of lessons and they worked out a strategy which would overthrow the Ghani government. But no one saw how quickly it would happen. And there's going to be a lot of analysis on this for some time. But from a personal point of view, it's devastating because I have many friends in the Afghan military and in the government and society there. And I knew instantly that they would not just suffer many of these people and will be round up being executed. But also because Afghanistan is a beautiful country, it has so much opportunity, natural resources. And to think the 20 years we've put into building that, to think that's just been washed away in a, in a matter of weeks. I don't think I've fully processed this yet. I don't think many people have. It's, it's, it's hard to really get your head around that that is now all gone. And the white flag of the Taliban now flies over the American embassy and over the uh, presidential palace. And it's just important to reiterate the symbolism of that flag flying over the American embassy before the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You did serve three tours in Afghanistan. You do hold the conspicuous gallantry cross, one of the very highest honours in the British military for your service there. And we'll come to your story, James, and your deeper feelings about this. But let's just go back to what you said. You mentioned the ISI there, the Pakistani intelligence services, if you like. Osama bin Laden was, in fact, killed in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. A lot of our listeners will think, well, hold on, aren't Pakistan meant to be Britain's ally? What's going on here? Everyone keeps talking about the Taliban. You know, the Taliban have resisted Britain, America, NATO. But it's misrepresenting what has really happened here. And everybody in Western governments, in Britain, America, in our intelligence services and our armed forces know that there's no such thing as the Taliban without the host nation that supports and arms them, that provides financial support and strategic direction. And that's Pakistan. This is a Pakistani-based organisation. It has operated out of Quetta for over two decades. The mainstream media rarely mentions Pakistan. The politicians are absolutely terrified of upsetting Imran Khan and Pakistan. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, we have a large diaspora of Pakistani people in Britain who may contribute greatly to our country. But one of the fears from the security services is that there are radical elements that have supported and do support um, international terrorism. So there is a fear of upsetting Pakistan on that front. And this spreads to America as well. They very rarely call out Pakistan. It's about trying to keep Pakistan on side to an extent because they lean so heavily towards China, which is why billions of dollars of equipment and money has been invested into the Pakistani military by America. And a lot of money goes in from Britain. So we have this very ironic set of circumstances where America, Britain and Western nations have funded Pakistan. The Pakistani armed forces sold them equipment. And in turn... They have supported the Taliban. And the reason Pakistan supports the Taliban comes down to their ongoing Cold War or conflict with India. They do not want an independent, liberal or de democratic Afghan nation on their Western border because they believe it will be more India facing and supportive of India. They would prefer to have a radicalized dictatorship under the Taliban, which they can control because that means that they have dominance over India and they essentially have India surrounded. So this has really got nothing to do with Afghanistan. This is Pakistan invading another country 
in order to shore up its uh, strategic depth against its arch enemy, India. And it's just something that's been completely overlooked. We seem to be on the news constantly talking about Taliban gains, Taliban that. But right now, I can tell you from information I've got from people that I've worked with in the Afghan NDS, which is their intelligence, Afghan military, that most of the commanders that they've either killed or captured were Pakistani. They speak Urdu. Right now, the ISI has control of all the data of the Afghanistan government. And they're going door to door in search parties looking for Afghan intelligence officers who they see as the enemy. They'll round them up and kill them. So th- this is a regional problem that we, we've got involved in the country because of terrorism from Al-Qaeda. And we've been completely naive to think that uh, Pakistan really was ever on our side and wanted a successful, independent Afghanistan. That's superbly well explained, James. And this great game that you're talking about, these huge interregional ancient rivalries that we're not fully acknowledging, uh, as you say, uh, looking at the situation, are just the backdrop to the sort of more immediate political crisis here in the West. We've got Boris Johnson you know, attending a virtual G7 summit, trying to tell the US government what to do here with our Prime Minister pleading with Joe Biden to extend the self-imposed deadline of the 31st of August for the withdrawal of troops for the country. You've then got the Taliban saying, unless that deadline is observed, there will be, quotes consequences. What do you think is going to happen over the next couple of weeks, James, as this deadline comes and goes? What will Biden do? What will the Taliban do in response? Has Boris Johnson got any influence whatsoever in what the American or the Taliban response will be? We have an extraordinary situation, which is the Taliban sitting in the presidential palace, which is built by American money, and they are telling America, you cannot extend your evacuation deadline beyond the 31st of August. This is a terrorist organization telling what's meant to be the world's superpower what they can and can't do 20 years after 9-11. You just have to step back and realise the gravity of the situation and just the extent to which uh, American and NATO's respect, authority and influence has now been undermined. This is a seismic event that is the repercussions are far greater than Vietnam. And I, I don't say that lightly. We have no idea just the the second, third, fourth order effects of this huge reputational damage that's been done. That's one image I want want you to take away. The second one is the special relationship. What can Boris do? Now, the special relationship really alludes to the Five Eyes intelligence relationship of sharing information, the interoperationality of our armed forces. Personally, I think it stops there. I've always thought it as to be an abusive relationship. America doesn't share the same national interests as Britain. We are an independent nation and we have tried for so many years to cozy up to them, to get them to say whenever a prime minister goes to the White House, oh, we believe in a special relationship, Britain's our closest ally. But I think we have to be honest here and acknowledge finally that there is no such thing politically as a special relationship. There is a good relationship between our military and we share a lot of common interests, but we have to put that term, confine it to the dustbin of history and work out our own independent foreign policy. Because Boris Johnson is not being listened to. In fact, nobody's been listened to since Margaret Thatcher um, in Britain. So we we need to consider rearming our armed forces to give ourselves 
much more ability to deploy and defend ourselves without relying on NATO, so without relying on America. But we need to be far more robust in the way we handle our foreign policy with America, with the EU, and have a clear plan for the direction this country is going or what we want and make sure it is everything we do is to the benefit of the UK. And right now, we've been catering to the Americans for far too long. Boris Johnson has very little influence over Joe Biden. And of course, he's going to try and ask for an extension of this evacuation deadline, but that's going to fall on deaf ears. And Biden just wants out. James, you're a very serious guy. You have a, a huge voice in this debate, if I may say so. You got a degree from Oxford. You're a captain in the Royal Marines. You completed three tours of Afghanistan and were highly decorated, as we've mentioned. But I just want to split the remainder of this interview into two. I want to talk, first of all, about your experience of Afghanistan as a soldier and how that impacts your view of what's happening today. And then I want to talk about your view of Afghanistan in terms of your involvement with the country since you left the military. Let's go first on James Glancy, the soldier and Afghanistan. Well, before I deployed to Afghanistan in 2006 as a 22-year-old, fresh-faced at Royal Marine Training and Oxford, um, I'd always had these great stories. My father, who's a, a well-known um international news and documentary cameraman and he had lived with the Mujahideen who fought the Russians and fought against the Taliban in the 1980s and 90s working for ITN alongside Sandy Gould. So I was very excited to get there and it didn't disappoint when I got to Kabul and we were based there just over five and a half months giving security to the police districts around Kabul. That was the era, strangely, of when John Reid said, I hope we can deploy to Afghanistan or to southern Afghanistan uh, and return without firing a shot. That's the former Labour Defence Secretary. That's exactly that. So I remember seeing him at Camp Suta in Kabul, and then the powers deployed down to Helmand, which is essentially like sending a Millwall football hooligans to Chelsea to improve relations. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Utter chaos kicked off in a province that nobody understood. We created an insurgency out of pretty much nothing. The Taliban had been politically and militarily defeated in 2001. But we sort of turbocharged the resistance down south. And I just remember the first casualties coming up to Kabul. And that was the first time I thought, oh my God, you know, being in the Marines, it's great wearing the beret and it's great doing all the sort of activities and the kudos that comes with it. But this is serious. When I started seeing the body bags coming through Kabul. On my second tour, I deployed straight to Helmand and I was there for eight months. And, you know, that's where I really cut my teeth as a, a young commander on the front line. You know, we were fighting the Taliban almost every single day. There was a point in 2008, over six weeks, our Viking troop, we took a mine strike every week for six weeks. So that's six mine strikes on my troop alone. And we took multiple casualties dead. People lost limbs, lost legs, broken backs, horrific things happened. And we closed with and killed many, many Taliban. We also, unfortunately, had civilians caught in the crossfire. You know, I never really have tried to process that. I just came back and switched off from it. But I ultimately enjoyed my time. And I sort of felt, always felt slightly ashamed of that. As anyone who really got older, left the military and started to reflect, particularly on that tour, I just started to think, you know, every time we got in a contact to fight with the enemy, we'd call in American or British air support and drop bombs and compounds and I just thought, well, what if someone had done that on Oxted, where I grew up in Surrey, or where any of us live at home? You know, I would want to fight these invaders. And it just became very clear to me that the way we fought this this campaign 
was in no way positive for the people in Afghanistan. It was sending normal, decent, rural people that have no interest in the wider world, just want to get on with their tending their crops, is radicalizing them, turning them into Taliban. You know, and that strategic plan, that operational plan, you know, that came from somewhere. And it's always made me think there's been no accountability by the way we conducted these operations. And if I've always thought, if you ask the people I've served, the Marines, the soldiers, um, the airmen and so forth, you know, what was the mission? If you ask people from the last 20 years, I would say they'd almost all give you a different answer. Some that it was to hunt Al-Qaeda, others that it was to um, nation build and help Afghanistan. But people will give you a mixed bag. And that mission creep, that lack of focus, and just completely the wrong approach to the country is pretty much why we are where we are today. So you did leave the military in 2014, James. And since then, you've done a lot of things. You're a a well-known documentary maker in your own right, a conservationist. Uh, You've been presenting television programmes. You've been a Brexit Party MEP, of course. But you've also stayed heavily involved with Afghanistan, haven't you? And I think that's one of the reasons why you're talking to me today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, politics, I realise, just isn't for me. I'm somebody that likes to be on the ground in the field. But yeah, I've always felt this sense of, I don't know, it was shame or just curiosity, because when you're a soldier in Afghanistan, you don't actually get enough time to see the country or meet the people. I don't think we invested enough in actually understanding the people. And dad had always said to me, you know, it's living with the great commander Masood and the Mujahideen, they were hospitable. The country's stunning, it has so much to offer. So I thought during lockdown, you know, I've always wanted to make a documentary there about the country. Now is a good time to escape Britain and go back to Afghanistan and go and do what dad did in the 80s and live with the people and find out what they make of the war to see if there has been any improvements and to find out whether this country really has a future. I came back from that trip and I think it was three weeks later came the Biden announcement of ending the so-called forever wars and this ridiculous timeline, all our troops will be home before 9-11, said with much gusto and confidence. And I just felt sick when I heard it. I felt sick that week because I had seen the state of the Afghan forces who absolutely rely not just on air support, but the leadership, the support of the West of America for everything from technical support to keep their equipment going to the financial support And just the mere presence of a few thousand soldiers gave them the confidence to fight on because they're a new country. They're a new armed forces, only 20 years old. And they also know that the Taliban has the backing of Pakistan on the border, which is absolutely formidable. So by taking away that backbone, that support so quickly without even giving them a year to transition, you know, the Russians gave when they left a huge amount of time to prepare and hand over, which is why it held out for three years. But we gave them no time at all. We really did pull the rug. And I knew this when I was back in the UK. I knew that the government would fall. But I assumed it would take an entire fighting season cycle and it would be next summer, 2022, that it fell. Anyhow, I went back to Afghanistan in June, continued our journey with the Afghan forces, living with them, went out with the Afghan special forces, um, went up to meet uh, Masood, Ahmad Masood, the son of Commander Masood, and I lived with the Mujahideen. And it's very clear that Mujahideen were reforming. They were dusting off their old equipment, including Soviet tanks. They were getting ready because they knew that the government would fall and that the Mujahideen would be the last bastion of resistance against the Taliban. So it was just very strange to witness the reforming of the Mujahideen under Massoud 
um, in 2021 when my dad had been with his father, Masood, in 1998, resisting the Soviets, and then again in 1994, fighting the Taliban. To see history repeat itself was absolutely extraordinary. But you just it's unbelievable the difference in morale. With pre-Biden's announcement, there was confidence. The country had a vibrant economy. You know, it really did feel like it was the heart of the or part of the Silk Roads with there's so much trade going on between Iran, with Tajikistan, with Pakistan, a sense of as a young country with, with a future, with women being educated, doing sports. I was actually proud for the first time that we had done something. When we went back, every district was falling, the military was in disarray, the sense of morale, it was just chaos. And we couldn't even leave Kabul at times because it was so, so damn dangerous. And at that point, I knew that this country has absolutely no hope. This war is not over. The Mujahideen resistance remain in the Panjshir. And I want to urge all politicians and anyone that has influence, we must politically, overtly and covertly support the Mujahideen and keep the flame of democracy and hope alive. The USA and UK really must get behind the resistance. And Planet Normal listeners should look out for James Glancy's documentary from Afghanistan, which he's hoping will secure cinema release next year he's working hard on it and i for one am certainly looking forward to seeing it i thought that was an absolutely riveting interview liam thank you so much for bringing james lancy to our attention i mean you know it was jaw-dropping the picture he painted of the country the extraordinary um, influence of Pakistan on on what's happened, which is uh, which, as he said, has been not just overlooked, but I think hidden. That there are radical elements in Pakistan, and indeed, probably radical elements in Pakistani community in our own country, which the government perhaps is a bit alarmed at upsetting. I mean, you know, that sets alarm bells ringing for me. But what a brilliant overview of what's gone on in that country. And the relationship between his father with the Mujahideen leader and then James going back as his father's son and meeting the son of the former Mujahideen leader and history repeating itself in Afghanistan and his amazing picture he paints of a country that was young country that was vital and emerging and things going well and suddenly just absolutely smashed to bits. And I just thought it was stunning, really stunning. I have to say, Alison, as an ex-ITN person myself, Bernard Glancy is a legendary character, foreign cameraman. I've been privileged to work with him during my time in television news. And now his son, I hope, having conducted himself with real distinction in our Royal Marines, will now carve out for himself a name as a documentary maker, hopefully with his upcoming Afghanistan documentary, you know, which is him in and amongst the Mujahideen, somebody who knows and is known well within Afghanistan filming, not an ordinary journalist by any means. And you wrote very nicely in your column this week about why you trust soldiers more than you trust politicians. And I, for one, think that James Glancy just illustrated that perfectly. If James Glancy was our leader, I'd fall in behind him, Liam. I would salute. I mean, very interesting, as you said, that he won the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross, an extraordinary honour. And I've been very, very moved this week. You know, you've seen these 
machinations and awful hopeless statements from politicians, rolling out a blueprint and all that usual garbage that they talk when they don't know what they're doing. A bespoke blueprint. <laughs> a bespoke blueprint. No, what's, what are they? <laughs> Ro, no, it's the roadmap. Oh. You know, the minute Boris says roadmap, we're absolutely doomed, don't you? I mean, that... The roadmap to where? Oh God, you know, um, it's like, you know, like being stuck at a service station off the A one two three, isn't it really? But I was struck by the contrast between the sort of political ineptitude and embarrassment, and the extraordinary job that British paratroopers were doing at Kabul airport. It really made me burst with pride, and I just want to say something for the listeners because. There's a very, very terrific American journalist, Jane Ferguson. She's the Afghanistan correspondent for PBS. That's the US's Radio 4. I think she's also a professor of journalism at Princeton. And Jane Ferguson tweeted about seeing the British military at Kabul airport. Just let me read a bit to you, Liam. The British military here have shown breathtaking levels of toughness, professionalism and rare in wartime, I must say, compassion. I've been moved to tears by their actions, diving into dangerous crowds to pull visa holders into the base, guarding sleeping women and children, helping them find the right transportation to the airstrip for their flights, pulling their own food out of their pockets and handing it to refugees, sleeping out on the cement, little supplies parched in the sun. There are young British men here who have lost their voices days ago, sunburned faces, dusty uniforms, exhausted, still working to help people. In what is a humanitarian mission few soldiers are really prepared for, they are strict about not being filmed. So I don't have many pics or videos, sadly, but I have notes and memories of their kindness and their bravery. Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the brilliant messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love hearing from you and we steal all your ideas. So here's one that caught my eye. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I know you're rifling through them, trying to work out what's going on. This is um, Emma, who's written to us about the terrific Giles Fraser interview we had last week about the ructions in the Church of England. Emma says, thanks to the Reverend Giles Fraser and everyone supporting the Save the Parish campaign for speaking out for ordinary churchgoers who understand the role which parishes play in our national life. A recent Civitas report on the Church of England called Rotting from the Head eloquently describes how separated from the people the bishops have become. Their staff in the diocese are allowed to demand money from the parishes with threats to close us down. We tend to feel murderous rather than generous when we receive these messages. Not a very Christian response, says Emma. The church's own official growth policy, from anecdote to evidence, tells us that sacking vicars and amalgamating parishes into groups called benefices under one vicar does not work. Church leaders write in the newspapers about how much they love the parish system while they carry on sacking vicars. Some of the dioceses have frozen new vicar appointments and are experimenting with hub schemes where the vicar is sent out from the diocesan centre. But vicars are supposed to be modelled on the good shepherd. Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Jesus did not say, I will come and take your mother's funeral, a woman I never met. In a couple of hours when I have done my other jobs, I'll be turning up in an unmarked car. There is a new document out there 
which would give the dioceses totalitarian powers to close churches. It's called GS2222. I urge all Planet Normal listeners to Google GS2222 and to email their objections to the address on the final page. They may notice that the introduction is written by a piece whose job title is Head of Pastoral and Closed Churches. These seem to be opposites, like good and bad, life and death. Post-pandemic, I believe our churches should be part of the national healing process. A University of York report found that even 75% of non-churchgoers want to be able to visit churches as places of quiet reflection and comfort. God bless Save the Parish and Planet Normal. Well, thanks so much, Emma. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. Lots and lots of emails, as ever, about the inability of many of our listeners to secure face-to-face GP consultations. This is from Keith. Until the government takes on the British Medical Association, as we said, the Doctors' Trade Union, in the same way that Margaret Thatcher took on the National Union of Minors, we will always be in the situation of doctors dictating terms rather than reflecting what the patients want. Mrs T could have taken them on. Come on, Boris, show us your mettle. As you said, Liam, hundreds and hundreds of emails from people, despite what the British Medical Association claims, people are still not being able to see a doctor. This is Diane. My GP surgery has been locked throughout the pandemic and remains so. My husband is seriously ill and I needed to contact them to ask for an addition to his prescription, an item he had been prescribed in the past. So I went to the website to use the e-consult form. I was surprised to see a statement at the top of the website stating that they were pleased to announce that their surgery had remained open throughout the lockdown for face-to-face consultations. It also said that all their doctors are on annual leave throughout August, so the e-consult system had been disconnected for the month. Thank you, says Diane, for keeping a focus on this important subject. It really is Alice in Wonderland stuff, Halligan, isn't it? It certainly is. And here's A. Carter, who writes to Planet Normal, the BMA doesn't want to cede any of the control they've wrested from the public during this pandemic. This will be followed directly by the teaching unions in the next few weeks and Unison, FDA and then Unite shortly after. History will note that the unions didn't gain progress for their members by virtue of their moral stance and deep commitment to their welfare, but by holding the rest of the country to ransom. I think they're loathsome organisations run by loathsome individuals. Those who belong to them need to take a long, hard look at their consciences. And this is Malcolm. Really interesting. I understand there are whispers along government corridors of a restoration of a type of crown immunity for healthcare services, which have not performed to the expected standard since the pandemic began. Get your negligence claims in quick. Good advice, Malcolm. I must say, Alison... Amongst our emails, we've got to include some re- responses to the piece you wrote, Aping Shakespeare, Shakespeare for our new woke generation. Why don't you read out some of those? Listeners may have seen that there's a new production of Romeo and Juliet at the Globe Theatre in London, which comes accompanied with all these trigger warnings, because apparently someone can commit suicide in Romeo and Juliet, Liam. Who knew? Apparently there's some <laughs> stage blood. Apparently. <laughs> Evidence of young people falling in love. I mean, I, I wrote the column, actually, I did the tragedy paper when I was at university, and tragedy is sort of supposed to be upsetting. That's kind of that's kind of what it's for, really. But The clue's in the name. The, clue, the clue's in the name. <laughs> Poor Shakespeare. Thank 
God is genius can see off all these lunatics. Anyway, Ian says, I went to see the new production of Romeo and Juliet at the Globe. The warnings and explanations which flashed up at regular intervals were so ridiculous that I thought they were simply a stylistic nod to Brechtian alienation. The costumes and sets were even worse, I thought, offering no pleasure at all. Woke is the new Puritanism. At least there's comfort in knowing something similar happened 400 years ago. And just to go on to it, Liam, Michael then responded in the comments to Ian. In 1642, the Puritans ordered the Globe Theatre closed and it was destroyed in 1644. The Puritans opposed all forms of entertainment. They believed in a very strict code of conduct and, quote, deplored any kind of finery or flippant behaviours such as co-pilot Halligan engages in. Steady. (laughs) How long before a farcical repeat of history? Paul reports something really quite astonishing from modern day theatrical genius. That is Columbo, the fantastic (laughs) 1970s detective serial with Peter Falk in a dodgy Mac uh, Columbo now has contains violent scenes warning. <laughs> I don't remember any violent scenes from Columbo. <laughs> Nothing and remains, says Paul, but to laugh, brackets, or cry. Exactly. And David says, I've even seen the world at war prefixed with contained scenes of violence. Surely not. Can't people read? Do you want my favourite observation of the week? Go on then. Kevin has got a really good suggestion for how to deal with the testing, Halligan. Kevin says, our cat is the nominated PCR test taker in our house. She does not like it, but we always test negative. Well done, Kevin's puss. Well done. Oh, my God. What would Mrs (laughs) Slocum say? My God. (laughs) So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn to pick. And I think, well, our email of the week, it has to be our source. And our source will be getting a Planet Normal mug. Yes, our brilliant source. And I think we'll just watch that story, won't we, Liam? Vaccinating 12-year-old children. Uh, We'll watch how that develops with great interest. If you enjoy Planet Normal, as you damn well should. Actually, do you know they said that bloody was disappearing as a swear word, Halligan? Bloody's my favourite swear word. It's a good swear word. It's a brilliant swear word. If you enjoy Planet Normal, bloody well leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website, you lucky things. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it and I'll reply from 11am to noon. It is you, our sensible, sure-footed, worldly wise Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who make this podcast. We really do learn so much from you and would love to be in touch. We certainly do, so keep the emails rolling in. And as we speed away from Planet Normal, the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.